0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Welcome to the Manchester United weekly podcast season review of 2021-22. In this two-parter, we'll first be looking back at the campaign just gone. Our favorite moments, and yes, there were some goals and players will consider... With the benefit of hindsight, where it went wrong for Oleg and and then where it went wrong for his interim successor, Ralph Ranick, as well. We'll compare the 21-22 defense to that of the season before. And the same for the attack. We'll consider how the team's style changed under Ole and then Ralph. And we'll talk about a flurry of departures, how our low knees fared away from United and what the year was like for our academy as FA Youth Cup winners. In part two, released a day or two after this one, we'll be looking ahead to the era of Eric Ten Hag. We'll consider what needs to be done with regards to recruitment, character, squad, harmony, club structure, ownership, captaincy, goalkeeper, midfield, defence attack, and transfers, transfers, and transfers again. And we'll answer some questions from the patrons who have supported the show all throughout the season, for which we are very grateful. I'm Harry Robinson with Jack Tate alongside me as always. And we'll get stuck in quickly, starting off on a positive before we let the gloom take over. Uh, your favourite moment of the season, Jack, because for however terrible we think this year has been, and it has been, there have been a surprising number of brilliant, ecstatic moments, actually.
0: There have, weirdly so. When I think about this season, I just straight away go to all of the bad parts. But yeah, there have been some some real highs and some some huge lows more so than the most seasons I think I mean there are a few obvious ones obviously the start of the season the first two home games Leeds and then Newcastle yeah. really stand out Leeds I mean I'll let I'll let you talk more about Leeds because you were I think you were there and it just like was, it sounds like an amazing day but yeah Newcastle especially with Ronaldo sort of homecoming scoring two goals it felt like you know we're here I think at that point we'd won three and drawn one of our first four yeah. games as well. So, you know, everything seems to be moving in the right direction. Um, one that I'd actually forgotten about and, and came to mind as I was trying to think of once for this was also West Ham away early on in the season. Lingard coming on, scoring yeah. against his former team and then De Gea's last against... second penalty save. Wasn't that his first penalty save in like 10 years or something? Or it was years, like five or six years.
1: Maybe not in years, but it was first in, uh, I think I remember it being first in 40 penalty saves. In forty penalty oh. attempts, and and the fact it was against Mr. West Ham Football Club, Mark Noble, who came Football on, to, on. Yeah, yeah, came onto the pitch, took the captain's band and the penalty in his kind of retirement parade of a season, <laughs> and then that was
0: like peak Premier League. Like, right, it's star, just. Yeah
1: it It was brilliantly in in the most bitter way imaginable, and I don't know why I'm bitter towards Mark Love, but I don't dislike him that much <laughs> um but it was just fantastic irony, especially against the goalkeeper who who had just months before not only missed a penalty in the Europa league final but failed to save eleven of them in a row um so yeah, that was funny. And yeah, that's the thing. You look back at our fixtures and actually th- there were some ways ones. was even West Ham at home as well in January. Uh, Ole yeah. had gone by that point, but uh, the last minute winner from Marcus Rashford. And that was, I think the key to a lot of these and not West Ham away, but the key to a lot of them has been the kind of post COVID atmospheres at Old Trafford which have been yeah 100% honestly really amazing at times and West Ham was one of them just absolutely bouncing coming out of the ground then but there's been others Arsenal the 3-2 win at home and just before it came in Atalanta the 3-2 win, uh the Ronaldo led win uh in the Champions League on the Ole. And that was at a time where you thought this is it, this isn't going right for Solskjaer. Maybe this is the one that turns it around. There was a, a, just an amazing connection between team manager and and, and fans at that point. Yeah. Uh Villarela at home now, in the Champions as, League yeah, as well. That, I think that's yeah. a
0: really underrated one.
1: Yeah. It's it's a crazy amount of great moments. And yeah, of course Leeds on the first day was was something really special uh and yeah, really memorable. Uh, and obviously, uh, even taking away the idea of uh, of the fact how much hope we had and we thought, oh, wow, maybe this team's better than we thought and Varane coming out, even taking away all of that, just being back in a ground with 75,000 people and kind of seeing people you hadn't seen for 18, 24 months was was just fantastic by itself, but also leads away. And Atleti away was yeah, not an amazing true. result, but it was a great goal. And so there's been all sorts of amazing moments which is, I mean, maybe it should change how we kind of reflect on the season a little bit. We will obviously go into the, in, in some detail, we'll go into the bad bits. But as a fan, it we will remember those good moments probably more than we remember <laughs> the bad ones. We'll remember losing to City and Liverpool, obviously, but we'll probably remember the good moments more than like we remember drawing to Everton or drawing to Villa or yeah. that kind of thing.
0: I think this also, this also is just reinforcing the idea that we were a pretty average team for a lot of the season because pretty much all, yeah. all of these moments are us having to score late last minute winners yeah. against teams that we should be beating every day of the week as well. You know, th- yeah. these aren't like last minute winners against Man City or Arsenal or, well, one of them was Arsenal, not a last minute, but a win against Arsenal. But it's not like these are huge teams we're beating. It's like last minute goals to beat West Ham or, Oh, uh, like dominate Newcastle or Leeds or yeah, it's just, it's, I think we, we had this season of like very, very high highs and then very low lows because we, we were quite an average team. So so many of our games were decided yeah. by like the odd moment, the odd goal here or there. We didn't really have many comfortable like two or three nil victories.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I, I will. Yeah, I reflect on this season. I, was, I think, and I imagine most people agree with this as the worst I've seen in my lifetime. For all sorts of reasons, whether it's results on the pitch or the attitude on the pitch, but also events off the pitch, none more prominent and notable and significant than Mason Greenwood's arrest in January, which I think is underrated in the way it clouded over the rest of the season. And in a way that it clouded over, obviously, Mason Greenwood himself, who was at the time playing very well and was kind of United star boy. But also it, it kind of, it took the shine off the whole squad in a way because it, it kind of took away that, that kind of bubble around the players of, yeah, I, I don't know how to phrase it perfectly, but I think it overshadowed the rest of the season, even at times when we didn't notice it. So it has been the worst season in my lifetime for a whole plethora of reasons. Well,
0: on on but the pitch there have been only,
1: this, might, this, this isn't a particularly important question for now, but
0: <laughs> on the pitch purely, do you think this was worse than the Moyes season?
1: Uh, on the pitch, purely no, because well, well, we did have some great moments in the Moy season as well. Although one of them was leading Bayern Munich for 22 seconds rather than <laughs> any more than that. But uh, yeah, there were. I don't know. It's hard to remember without maybe the worst moment of that season is Welbeck trying to chip. Yeah, Neuer. yeah. <laughs> old traffic. I th- I think I think there was such a. I don't know. It's very hard to tell, and this is yeah, this is going maybe too too in depth on it, but the way that I think we analysed football in the Moyes season was very different to the way that football is analysed and picked over and every mistake is, is torn apart now. That's true. So I think it's, I think it's really difficult and we we obviously could compare them if we went back and and watch games, but also the Premier League is just at a completely different tactical level to what it was in the 2013, 14 season. So yeah, this season's been really bad, but on the pitch, the football probably has been better. I can't, I can't in my head compare them like off the top of my head. So I don't know, but you're right. The on, I think the, I would, the, the, a lot of what's wrong this season, not in terms of Mason Greenwood or anything like that, but a lot of what's been wrong this season has been off the pitch and yeah. the realisation of just how bad things are. Right. Which we didn't know in 2013.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's, that's part of what makes this season just so bad because it's like at this point you you're almost sort of at, at the end of your tether with Man United. You know, it, it's almost almost like you've got a badly behaved child, you know, and you've tried every single parenting idea in the book to try and help get them on yeah. the straight and narrow. And you're just kind of like, what what am I supposed to do with you now? And that's kind of feel like where we're sort of at with Man United. We've tried everything. Where yeah, I guess. There was sort of blissful ignorance at the time during the Moyes season that, oh, it's just a season, we'll get a better manager and then everything will go back to how it was. Um, But I think on the pitch purely, I would probably say this this has been slightly better than the Moyes season just because I think the overall, sort of in the aggregate, I think it's been about as bad as each other. But as we've been saying here, I think we've had better, good moments this season. And I think that probably just sways it in favour of this year, purely on the pitch.
1: Well, we finished one place higher this year, but we got to a Champions League final on the noise. And I mean, f- for, for an example, the comeback against Olympiacos in the second leg, 3-0, Van Persie scoring yeah, actually, at Old Trafford. That
0: was amazing, yes.
1: that, that was a great moment. And there, I'm sure there are others. There, there are some that I'm thinking of, but I'm sure there are more that we're forgetting. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, but also a... a Horrendous activity to have to <laughs> participate in. If if you wanted to spend hours looking at comparing Moyes to the Ole Rannick season,
0: if anyone wants to come on and um, do a special over the summer, you can be a guest and talk about which one of these seasons was worse than the other.
1: Then let us know. Yeah, you cannot. You can not only be a guest; you can host the whole thing because yeah. I, I don't want to be involved in that. On the subject of horrible things to do, worst moment of the season for me was yes, yeah. Liverpool home and away were both terrible, but I think. I think the City game at home, particularly because of the emotions around it, when City were playing, just playing around in the corner and no one was able to win the ball back. And the only way we could stop them doing it was just by kicking them. And even that we didn't do very well. And it was the fact that we'd seen Liverpool do the same thing just a couple of weeks before. And also the fact that at that point, it was just blatantly obvious that things couldn't continue under the manager that, that at least I loved and a club legend and you—you, it was the realisation that yeah this is this is over but not only the realisation this is over but in front of your rivals who were just toying with you in a training session so for me City at home the worst but having been at Anfield as well for the 4-0 that was also pretty bad but given Liverpool didn't end up winning the league less bad than it, it could have been
0: yeah all four of those games against City and Liverpool home and away were um, it's just it, they were astronomically bad. I think the worst, the worst sort of specific moment yeah. for me out of those those four games only would be actually the, the first goal that we conceded at Anfield because it was after yeah. it was it was literally what like five minutes three or something, or four, yeah. and it was an, a shambolic goal, like yeah. one ball over the top, and you all we had Phil Jones against like three Liverpool attackers all bearing down on, on goal, and it was like. Not not that you could excuse what happened the first time around at home, you couldn't at all, but it was sort of like you went into the second one and, I, and at least personally, I think a lot of fans are thinking, right, there's no way we can be, a, be yeah. as bad as we were the first time. You know, the first time we were in, it was sort of the beginning of that horrible run. It sort of felt like everything was coming to an end. We weren't playing great under Ranjik in the lead up to the Anfield game, but at least it felt like we maybe had a manager who tactically could yeah. maybe do a little bit more. To help us in the game, <laughs> and, 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 instead
1: yeah. he got he got it tactically completely wrong. Instead,
0: <laughs> yeah, um. maybe even worse than we did the first time. Other, other than those four games, the there was three that I that I could think of. So one was Athletic at home, just going out in that championship. Not not only because we lost, but because of that, I can remember watching that second half, and I feel like I could have I could have sat there at half time and written out almost exactly how that second half was going to play yep. out. It was yeah. just so predictable in how, in how bad it was going to go. That and also be because
1: the, ho- the whole rest, of like all of our hopes for the season was dependent on that second half and it, it, yeah. and it didn't go right. And so you left the ground.
0: And, and we'd actually played really well silence. to start the game as well.
1: Yeah. And, yeah.
0: You know, hadn't really got our rewards for it. And yeah, it just that second half was, was so, so predictable. And then the other two that I had was, this was from very, very early on in the season. The, who remembers the last minute uh, like winning goal that we conceded to young boys, yeah, way yeah. back in set, well, September. That would have been, I think. Who was it that gave was it Lingard? Yeah, who gave the ball was Lingard came gave, on gave for his, his boss. yeah.
1: Everyone he'd been asking for a chance and he came off the bench for that. And yeah, he'd, he'd obviously, and then three to be fair, three or four days after that, then he scored against West Ham, yeah. So he, yeah, he made a redemption art for him yeah, definitely. And then
0: the, the other one, this, this. It wasn't so bad in terms of the result. It was just a real sucker punch that I sort of took quite hard personally was um, the 2-2 draw against Villa yeah. in, was it January or February? Something Jan- like that. When January, yeah. We were actually playing quite well under Ranić at that point and we played really well against Villa, scored two good goals and then Coutinho, of all people, came on, yeah. scored twice in you know a couple of minutes and that that felt like such a gut punch at the time because that Villa game should have been a real sort of stepping stone for us. I felt like, you know, we had started to play better. It felt like a corner was sort of being turned and that just, yeah, it killed all of our momentum. So that, that for me was a, I remember feeling really, really down when that second, that second goal went in. Yeah,
1: we might reference that when we go on to where did it go wrong for Ralph? Um, Before we do, and we'll talk about Ole first as well, but very quickly, best goal for me, the one that won the club's end of season vote was Ronaldo's against Tottenham in the hat-trick where he just, thumped it. His other against Spurs, away from home, the over-the-shoulder volley, that was also lovely. The others I can instantly think of, Tellez against Villarreal was nominated for Champions League goal of the season, obviously didn't win it, but was was put up there. Bruno's thumper, the third goal against Leeds, uh, the hat-trick goal, and the other one that I'd forgotten about, but is actually a brilliant goal. and I think my favourite of the year, despite I don't even think I really saw it at the time from the away end in Bergamo, but Ronaldo and Fernandes combining the back heel from Fernandes Ronaldo's finish against Atalanta in the 2-2 away draw
0: yeah that was a great goal it really sort of flew under the radar because it, I think it got like subsumed didn't it because the ending of that game was crazy as most of our Champions League group games were but yeah, yeah. that was a great goal I think of the only other one that I had on my list was Fred in Ranjic's first game um, you know weak foot we sort of yeah. Over the keeper into the far corner. Think of the ones we mentioned. My favourite would probably be Teller's goal. I'm a I'm a sucker for a volley, especially direct from a corner. So I I love that goal. it's so also the, the the way the camera angle was for it. You know I yeah. love goals you just get like directly behind it and it just looks so perfect. Yeah it.
1: yeah yeah. It was great. And I'm gonna name drop here, but I spoke to Tellers about that goal. And given how excited this was about two months after as well, and given how excited he was about it still. Maybe that pushes it up to my favorite because he, he was just, I was like, how was it to do that in front of the Stretford end? And he was just beaming, like, yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it should be. That's how excited you should be about scoring a goal like that in front of the Stretford end. Yeah. Um, best player. There's three candidates. I think everyone knows who they are Fred, De Gea, and Ronaldo. For me, Fred, great second half of the season, but not good enough before Christmas. De Gea was a great shot stopper, but I, don't think I could vote for him because I particularly Anfield away was the one game where I really noticed it that he was not the reason we lost that game obviously and got thumped, but it was the one game I really noticed it. Uh His distribution was just terrible. And Ronaldo had some negative spells as well, just after Christmas, especially, but the way that Ronaldo a was great for the first few months. And then the way that after from the Spurs game onwards, was just kind of unstoppable when he played sometimes and his performance, even in defeat away at Arsenal was really good in terms of just overall, his enter season for me means that I would give my, my vote to him for best player of the season.
0: Yeah. I, I sort of don't, didn't want to give it to Ronaldo as as I was sort of preparing for the podcast, but the more I I thought (laughs) about it, I don't, I don't really see how I could give it to anyone else. Fred, I agree with you. I don't think Fred was consistent enough. Of of the three of them, I think De Gea probably was the most consistent. Actually, I don't think he really had a particularly bad spell. But I just think that De Gea's general game, the his limitation with the ball at his feet, it didn't. I'm not saying it was like a a massive, massive problem for a lot of the season because we had a lot of other really bad issues in our team, and his shot stopping was needed. But I just I don't think I can give it to him when I I think that he did he did limit us quite a lot and you know Ronaldo had bad spells but ultimately still ended up with what was it like twenty six twenty seven goals in all competitions Might, maybe even more he, I don't really see how you can give it to anyone else when yeah. he really did drag us through so many bad performances
1: I'll give the Gea some some uh, extra respect for the kind of additional leadership role he took on this season not that it helped being the one that would come out and front up after games and being very, very often painfully honest in interviews. So I'll give him some extra respect for that. Um But Ronaldo from both of us. Right, Yeah, uh, we've spent too long on that. Let's move on. Uh Where did it go wrong for Solskjaer? It's a big question. One we've had a bit of hindsight for. We're just going to run through it. Not too in depth because we did that at the time. But um looking back, I mean, first of all, it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> Looking back, and I I saw a clip inadvertently just saw a clip of his farewell interview the other day, and was like, ah, oh. that, that, that still makes me sad. Particularly thinking back to Gdansk and thinking what could have been, and that's I mean, to be fair, that's where it started to go wrong and where it probably should have ended was losing to Villarell in Gdansk, and he and we will always regret the fact we didn't win and the club will as well. And it was it was strange his departure because. Fans and players were upset to see him go, even if the the massive vast majority knew that he had to at that point. But I do look back and think it said a lot that, A, our decision was made so poorly. It wasn't made in that uh, November international break. And that the our decision was based and dependent on whether or not we lost to Watford away from home. And is it naive to think it shouldn't be like that? Maybe. But... I think it says a lot about what those making decisions knew or more, or more what they they didn't know and they should have known during the summer that they could have changed it in the summer and chose not to and then also still got the decision wrong and when they sacked him didn't have a replacement lined up.
0: Yeah, I, I was looking back through our, our results as we were sort of preparing for this just to sort of re-familiarise uh, re- myself with what the sequence of events was that led up to Solskjaer being sacked and... The more you look at it, yeah, the, the more it seems ludicrous that Solskjaer was even allowed to get to the Watford game, to be honest. I mean, we, we'd obviously been having some bad form. We'd lost really badly to Liverpool. We then lost quite badly to Leicester as well. And and then came the Man City game. And, you know, it, it should have been after the Man City game that he went. We, we then had an international break. We didn't play a game between Man City and Watford, Man City was on November the 6th and Watford was November the 20th. So, you know, we had two weeks there to make an appointment. I think yeah. it was an international break, you know, and, and maybe we wouldn't have ended up with, Randy, maybe we wouldn't have ended up with yeah. interim, who knows. But yeah, it just, it smacked of, yeah, just just no planning. And I think that's something that's run through a lot of the Solskjaer era and that, and that isn't really in his in his control. I think in terms of where it went wrong for him, in hindsight, and I don't think we could have known this at the time, but in hindsight, with everything that's happened since he's he left, I think what we've seen is that the foundation on which his relative success in his first two seasons was built, I think was a lot more shaky than it seemed. You know, I think yeah, the dressing room, which publicly, I think, under Solskjaer looked pretty harmonious, mainly because of him and how you know well he spoke about the players and how happy they all seemed to be playing for him was not as harmonious and wasn't in good spirits as, as it seemed I think we always knew that tactically he probably wasn't as good as you know the likes of Pep or Klopp or anyone on any of those top managers and we knew that I think all along I think what really sort of was the beginning of the end though was that when things did start to go wrong quite spectacularly last autumn his, that that lack of, of maybe ta- tactical ability at the top level then started to, I think, undermine his presence in the dressing room. And I think what you need in a, in a time when maybe a manager isn't running on a lot of confidence is you need a really strong, close-knit squad with a lot of leaders to sort of pull the squad through almost in spite of the manager. And, and the dressing room was far more fractured than we ever realised. And I think it just couldn't yeah. recover from that. So rather than the team putting themselves up, it got so much worse. And the culmination of that was the second half in that 2-0 defeat to Man City when, I mean, the players effectively gave up, didn't they?
1: Yeah. His man management is the thing we often picked out as as one of his really good abilities. And I think at the time, I certainly thought his man management was up there with the best in the league, in term- not as a full-on manager, but in terms of his man management. And the reason for that was the like the improvement in Luke Shaw, the improvement in Rashford, the the management of and, and how Mason Green was brought through and lots of things like that. Uh, and yet actually looking back, it, we real, in, in that autumn we realised anyway, but especially now we realised that it wasn't there and he made some bad decisions that created distrust yeah. from players and in the squad by, for example, keeping Chris Smalling for the summer, and then suddenly on the deadline day, saying no, you need to find a new club. And someone went to Roma by keeping Lingard, saying he was going to get the game time, and then not giving it to him. Ahmad's lack of playing time, giving a new contract to buy and saying he'd play when he didn't. And I mean, even even in the transfer of Van der Beek, kind of accepting that transfer when he clearly wasn't the player that he wanted. Van der Beek, um, and there were other players who were complaining, like Dallo, who couldn't get in the head of Wambasaka. He certainly. He had his favourites. And I think we said at the time, there was fault all round from Solskjaer for that and his lack of tactical ability, in, in, in especially in his third season, but also at points in his second. And then in terms of the board, just complete wrong decisions again and again. I think we recorded an episode after the Europa League final where we said we were really torn over what the right decision was to do and it was a hard one, but if if you were working in the club, you should know all of those kind of underlying factors and what's going wrong. That's kind of your job to know if you're the decision maker and they should have made the decision to to move on from Solskjaer after Gdansk, after he'd kind of improved the club. And yeah, I just think Woodward was obsessed with trying to create another Alex Ferguson. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about A, his lack of knowledge in, in how to do that, but also kind of his self-importance and egotism in in wanting to be the man who created the next Ferguson and so we had no plan and in the end we hung Oli out to dry as you say he should have gone well before the Watford game and then yeah yeah and then there's the players isn't there not taking things on board not dissenting against Solskjaer, but also not listening enough, not respecting him and his coaching staff and their own poor form. And the divides in the squad, the lack of leadership, divides on age, language and culture, not attending team meals. And yeah, having massive divisions in the squad, that a squad with good leadership would iron out over summers and over months and over a season. And they didn't do that. And we saw that very, very clearly under Randnick at the end.
0: Yeah exactly I think this you you, you learn the most about a dressing room when things are going badly right as you do with most groups of people and when things started to go wrong on Solskjaer the response wasn't what we wanted it to be and it wasn't the response we wanted it to be pretty much the entire time that Ranić was there as well so I think I don't know if it was maybe the higher expectations that we had coming into this season that maybe made the dressing room feel a little bit more entitled maybe made some of the egos more of a problem than they had been in the preceding years but Wherever it was, yeah, I think we definitely saw that this was, I don't necessarily want to throw around the word toxic, but I think it probably was quite a toxic atmosphere and quite a toxic dressing room to be part of. Everything that we've heard, especially recently, about how things transpired in the dressing room at Old Trafford, definitely don't, they're they're definitely not what you want to be hearing. But like you said, that should be something that the club are aware of. And uh, in hindsight as well, now that Ranyuk has confirmed that he won't be taking up his consultancy. Well, he hasn't confirmed. The club have confirmed that he won't be taking up his consultancy role. It also now feels like pretty much the entire time he was here, calling everyone out publicly, probably didn't help that atmosphere. No. Because it, it's sort of worth doing that if he was then going to be part of rebuilding it, so he can see how players respond to that kind of pressure of being put out there publicly. But as it was, it, <laughs> we just spent six months tearing down every player in our dressing room for the guy that was doing it to have no no part in in rebuilding that.
1: Squad. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. The that appointment route kind of just threw away our season, didn't it? And at the time, it, it seemed good, but we we sacrificed the season. Oh, yeah. It was the wrong decision. Yeah. And I think I think there is a scenario where Rannick could have had some limited success as interim manager at United, but it required a couple of things. I think first of all, a bit of continuation in the coaching staff rather than Carrick and McKenna both leaving or getting Rannick the coaches that he wanted in yeah. because Chris Armas and Shasha Lenz were not his first choice coaches and giving him more support in that because it sounds like he was scrambling around to find the coaches he wanted rather than getting any kind of sustained support in that. And then also giving him some some more backing inside, saying to the players, being visible in terms of that leadership above Renick in terms of Murta and Fletcher and um, Richard Arnold and even Joel Glazer, if you want, Publicly, but more importantly, privately backing Rannick and, and going into the dressing room, someone should be there, whether it's Fletcher, but Fletcher's role made harder by the fact that he was also coaching and also on the bench. So maybe it has to be Murta going in there and saying, no, this is, this yeah. is our man. We're backing him. You need to respect him and you need to play for him and you need to do that. And I don't, there's no sign that that was there at United. And so Rannick was, as in the same way the social was hung out to dry at the end, Rannick was hung out to dry for a season that being said some of his decisions were also rubbish and his level of management just was was not there
0: no not at all and and that that should not go unnoticed at all because regardless of you know where sort of how the club have mishandled the situation a person with that kind of reputation should be able to put a better better team out on the pitch than what he did during six months in charge and that is completely fair to say. I think the whole the whole scenario with Ranić just, it, it I mean, it makes no sense. And it's not the first time we've had to say that about decisions made by, by United. I think the problem was, right, that when you bring someone in, as, in a, as an interim manager, normally you bring them in to be kind of a safe pair of hands, someone who's not going to rock the boat, will just steady things up, get some stability back to the club, you know, maybe go on a run in one of the cup competitions. But mainly just to... To shore things up, get things back to some some stable level, so that when a new manager comes in the next season, they've got a much better yeah. base to build from. And so you've seen at Chelsea, for example, Goose Hiddink doing that a couple of times before. You know, someone who's very experienced, reliable, isn't going to do too much to to you know, like I said, not not going to rock the boat. The problem though is when you bring someone in as an interim manager with this consultancy role on on the end. It's like well. Ranić now has some power over the the direction of the club again i I know that consultancy role was never fully sort of formalizing what it was going to be, but I think it was a pretty good bet that Ranić was going to have some say in in what where the, our future direction would be so of course he's then going to start saying things and trying to sort of make pointed comments that point a little bit towards what the future yeah. might look like because he thinks he's going to be part of that so in sort of the power dynamics between Ranyuk and the players. Ranyik is sort of above them there because his his role is much more secure than any of the players in, in United's future. But then now that we've taken that consultancy role away, we we've just had an interim manager for six months who actually, as it turned out, was far below the players in terms of the pet yeah. of their importance to United going forward. But we've let that less important person come out publicly and basically say that 60% of our squad need need basically binning off and that we need to make ten new signings to get anywhere. And yet he, now he's nowhere to be seen. So he's just thrown away yeah. a season, had half our dressing room called out in the press by a, someone who now has absolutely no role in the club. And I, and I don't actually blame blame Ranyuk for that necessarily. I blame Ranyuk for how badly we performed on the pitch because no matter what, that was unacceptable. But the club framed his role completely differently to how it has ended up turning out. And I think it all goes back to when he was hired, that that consultancy role was never properly fr- framed. It was never properly defined what he was actually going to be doing you know, was he yeah, going to be and, a and, director? Was he basically just going to be asked here and there on a couple of transfers?
1: Yeah, and fans and Ranick and the media were hoodwinked by by the club in in that consultancy role because at the time yeah. it seemed like a really it, the the concept of having an interim manager and then going into consultancy as I think I said at the time repeatedly seemed like a really good one, but yeah, in it the did, way it makes that a lot of sense in the way that it was done it was terrible and it's hard not to think that the the treatment of ronic and and the way that this was all done is is typical of how united approach change because when we're backed yeah. into a corner the glazers offer kind of a gesture of openness and this is the same with the european super league they offer a gesture of openness and and reform or or change but it's only ever lip service and it's only ever forced and if they can then get out of doing it in the future then they will And so, for example, the fan-share scheme that was floated and and demanded after the European Super League has just been kind of pushed around. And there is some progress going on with it, but it should have happened within months after it was demanded. And it's not. On the other hand, and there is certainly different perspectives to this, on the other hand, we got Rannik in, so we we didn't rush an incorrect appointment and so that we could get Eric Ten Hag. And when we did get Eriksen Hag, then he himself wasn't convinced by Rednick and so he's gone. That's the other perspective. I think it's it's the, obviously the much kinder perspective to the club's decision makers. The truth, I think, is is as as always, is somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah. It definitely will be somewhere in the middle. But I, I really liked how you framed that of, you know, we were sort of hoodwinked by the club because, I mean, even take the two of us on this podcast. I think, I know I was very not hesitant to criticise Ranić but maybe hesitant to call his time at United a failure because I always maintained and always said for five months that I will judge Ranyuk based on what he does in his consultancy role and how he re- rebuilds this squad because that was always going to be the more important yeah. part of his time at United and so effectively I think actually ranyuk escaped a lot of criticism for how we've played on the pitch because we all thought yeah. well you know what to some degree not that this season doesn't matter but I'll judge Raniuk in two years when I see what he's done with this squad and helping us rebuild with a new manager. When actually he was just an interim manager for six months and yeah. he's one of the worst managers we've ever seen at United in, in terms of purely what we saw on the pitch without a shadow of a doubt. So it has, we've all been completely hoodwinked because it, it really has, I think, stopped a lot of scrutiny and stopped a lot of criticism coming his way because, like I said, we, we thought he was going to be around for a much longer time to help sort of create this new vision, this new direction for the club. And it, it just hasn't happened. So yeah, I think it's a great way of putting it that this whole scenario has kind of hoodwinked everyone and yeah, made us think very differently about Ranić's time at United until the very end.
1: Transparency and the Glazers do not go together in in harmony. No, no. Um, let's talk about the defence because when Ranić came in, uh, his first few press conferences And it's worth remembering his first few weeks were very weird because he was appointed, from memory, and this is off the top of my head, he was appointed on December the 1st, just before we played Arsenal, but Carrick was taking charge of the Arsenal game. We beat Arsenal 3-2. Rannick's first game was December the 5th, I think, against Crystal Palace. Then we played Young Boys on the 8th, and then we played Norwich on the 11th. And then we were meant to play Brighton on the 18th, but that was, there was a COVID outbreak at United, so that game was... Respond. so it was a weird start to to life as as it shouldn't have been as we said earlier because United could have appointed someone in that november international break instead but rannick came in and in his first press conferences he spoke very well he impressed everyone i think it's fair to say and his yeah. first target was to uh kind of put the plug in the leak because united's defense was terrible we conceded four to watford we conceded five to liverpool we'd conceded two to City, but if they'd actually tried in the game, they could have scored Water, nine. Leicester. Yep. Uh, the defence was a shambles. And even in games we'd won, like against Atalanta, we'd won 3-2. Uh, and there were a few games like that. Given, given how decent the defence was in 2020 2021, what do you think, first of all, under Oli, what do you think had changed to make it I think
0: we, I think we, had, I think we had tried to become a team that played a lot higher up the pitch. And I think that the Veran yeah. signing was was all part of that. And I, when I'm on paper, I, I still wouldn't I still wouldn't say that that was a bad decision necessarily. I think the process that we went through to come to that decision of being a team that plays higher up the pitch and signing a centre back who is on paper, you know, a lot better at being a bit of a sweeper and can play alongside Maguire with more space in behind him in Veran made sense. Yeah, I think what that did though was a couple of things. One, it exposed our defenders a lot more, and as it turned out. Varane was often injured. Maguire took a big step back, had a a bad season. Luke Shaw was often injured and wasn't at his best. Wan-Bissaka had a bad season. So it just, I think the change of system plus the key part in that system not being there and all of our players being in bad form meant that we were now playing a system that by its very nature gives the opposition more space, which is okay in in theory. But then when you have players that was supposed to be defending that space in bad form and or injured, you create a lot of problems for yourself because you're giving the opposition more more space to play in and you're having players with low confidence trying to deal with it. So I think that was probably the yeah. biggest change. Uh, and I think also in in midfield as well, because we we played higher up up the pitch, it meant that Fred and McTominay, in particular, were I think a bit more limited in what they could do defensively because yeah, they're best. Definitely. They're at their best defensively when we when we play in a low block and they basically just have to make a nuisance of themselves. When they're trying to have yeah. to mark sort of space, that that's not not what their role should be.
1: Exactly, yeah. It, it exposed all the flaws in our our players basically because the the first performance at Wolves. Definitely gave some reason to hope. It was that more attacking four three three, 3 3 and it, it had run in it and he looked really good. But as you said, yeah, it exposed all the flaws. And, and that's really where Solskjaer's downfall was in changing an ident- in changing the identity of United and the style of the team and the, the shape of the team. He didn't have the, forget the minor management because that also plays a part, but he, did, he didn't have the, the ability to execute that properly. And it, it showed As well as that, yeah, there was the poor individual form. So Shaw, Maguire and Rashford was injured for a bit, but Shaw, Maguire coming in after massive Euros, disappointment with England. And I think it's underrated how much of an impact that had. If you look at that England team, apart from Declan Rice and Mason Mount, probably. Rice and Mount carried on being very good. And if anything got better. At the start of the season, but Saka had a really difficult start to the season. Shaw Maguire Kane had a bad start to the season. Calvin Phillips was injured for much of it, but when he played wasn't as convincing. There were lots of players in that England team who who suddenly looked bad. And I think it's it's and Sancho as well, I think, was actually quite impacted by not only the the kind of the, the devastating fact of how England lost, but also by the massive racist abuse that he and Rashford and Saka suffered afterwards so there's that poor individual form the failure to execute it by the coaching staff and also yeah just the ability to players just wasn't there and that comes down to kind of recruitment doesn't it that united should have signed a midfielder last summer and we didn't
0: well yeah yeah exactly i think to be honest
1: i don't mean to it's worth remembering how much of an impact that has
0: yeah i i don't mean to sort of trivialize and and oversimplify a lot of united's problems because they run a lot deeper than this but I do think that not failing to sign a, failing to sign a midfielder last summer was probably the single biggest thing that went wrong, I think, this season on, on the pitch purely. I, because the, the other thing that comes with playing higher up the pitch, and, and this is where attack and defense, they go hand in hand so much. The other problem with playing higher up the pitch is that if you're losing the ball as often as United's midfield generally loses the ball with the likes of Fred and McTominay in there, you're giving your opposition the same number of chances to, to attack you, but giving them twice the amount of space to, into which they can attack. Yeah. When you play higher up the pitch, you also necessarily need to be giving them less chances to, to counterattack on you. And that means being better at keeping the ball. It means being better at building attacks that aren't counterattacks that are more sustained where you keep the ball for 20, 30 passes and create space. That wasn't something that United were good at in 2020 2021, and it's not something that we were good at in 21-22 you mentioned that well, that it, Wolves game Harry so go on
1: I was just going to say the one of the biggest complaints I think we had consistently in episodes early in the season before Ralph came in under Ole was just a complete lack of tempo in, in how we passed the ball yeah. around and that comes down down to that doesn't it
0: yeah absolutely like you mentioned you mentioned the Wolves game before Harry and You're right. There were, there were signs that it could work. I remember Varane having a great game in that, in that one at Molyneux. But the other thing that happened in that game was I also remember about seven or eight occasions in the first like 40 minutes or so when Adama Traore would absolutely just drive through our entire midfield and defense. And we were very lucky not to concede to him that day. But that I think was a, an early indication for me that. Because we weren't good enough at keeping the ball and creating space and creating good attacking opportunities when a team was sitting quite deep against us, it meant that as as a result of playing this higher line, we were just giving the team the same number of chances to counterattack us as a Dharma is, you know, one of the best in the world at doing, but giving them so much space that they could yeah. they could run into. So they they do go hand in hand, and I think that was also part of it. If you're asking if you're asking a centre-back like Harry Maguire, even Harry Maguire in good form, he is not the style of centre-back that is great at defending 50 yards of grass behind him. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and we were basically just putting him in, in that position too many times. And that's not to say that, it, that you know, that Maguire is vindicate, vindicated for this season. He's not. But, but even Shaw sure, isn't it it felt it
1: either. Like,
0: no, no, exactly, exactly. It all it all goes, goes together. And I, I just think the... The idea of playing higher up the pitch was, was good in theory, but I think it accentuated a lot of the faults that our players already had. And I think they, maybe that's where Solskjaer's sort of tactical side of things needed to, needed to be better.
1: Yeah, I guess the truth is it, it was good in theory and it was a thing that we had to do at some point, And that was the right yeah. time, if, if not too late. But what we didn't have is the right recruitment and coaching To facilitate it properly and that is a failure of of Solskjaer and his coaching staff but also massively of of the board just to wrap up on defence in the 2020-21 season United conceded 26 goals from open play and 14 from set pieces 14 from set pieces is outrageously high this season we conceded 49 from open play and just 5 from set pieces so we did fix a set piece problem 5 is one of the best records in the Premier League and um, so I, I suppose that comes down to Eric Ramsey, who people have criticised because like, we still don't score from set pieces, which is a fair criticism, but we have stopped conceding from set pieces. On the other hand, from open, maybe it's because teams don't need to score from set pieces because we're so bad from open play. Uh, so we'll see about that next year. But yeah, it was a completely different defensive style from one season to the next and actually a very different attacking style too. And what was incredible about this last season is we had so many different attacking problems. It was a, an a incredible variety of shitness across the entire year. So <laughs> um, if we, if we think back to the start of the season, there was some freedom typical of, of an Oregon and team, some freedom, but we couldn't control games. We had no tempo, no sustained pressure and no obvious consistent patterns of play in our attack. There was very little identity to our attack. You didn't know how they were going to do. It was down to individual quality. And that showed in results. When we were winning games, apart from leads, because that's an anomaly, when we were winning games, it was by a goal. And often we just weren't scoring despite having a lot of possession. When Ranjit came in, we eventually found a consistent style and we found some identity and we found an ability to sustain pressure really well and to create a lot of small chances but we couldn't finish at all. And that's where things went wrong for Ralph Rannick because once those results didn't come, then the players stopped having any faith in his, in his methods. And then we get to the end of the season and there was a bit more of a balance between defense and attack that Rannick was looking for, but the finishing still wasn't good enough and the confidence was low and our defense collapsed. And so whatever we did in attack didn't really matter because we didn't have the ball. And when we did have the ball, the confidence was so low and everything had fallen apart and there's not really any point looking at it because the players had stopped bothering. So across the season, lots of different problems, which means unlike in the summer of last year, when we kind of knew what United needed to fix, it is now very unclear what United needed to fix because we're starting from basically a clean slate or actually a very, very dirty (laughs) slate, but one with, with nothing on it.
0: Yeah, it was um, it was kind of puzzling, I guess, at the start of the season that we we seemed to be okay at, at creating chances. But yeah, they all they, there wasn't really much of a pattern to it. Like even going back to the Leeds game, all of those goals seemed to come from very different moments, very different ways of creating chances. Then yeah, went and drew against Southampton or against Wolves. We didn't create a whole lot in that game. If I remember rightly, I think it was a Greenwood like deflected shot that yeah. we scored from in that game. So it was just. Right from the beginning of the season, it didn't feel like we were particularly. What, what's the word? I guess succinct or maybe is, is a good word. I, I I don't know. I don't know what the word is. I'm trying to say we we looked disjointed basically. But what's the opposite yeah. of disjointed? Just joined up, I guess. Maybe anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we good. looked quite disjointed in attack, and I think that carried on for much of the season. Obviously dragged by Ronaldo. I know there was that whole story, or not story, but the whole sort of. Debate among the fan base of whether Ronaldo was kind of disrupting the way that we played. To be honest, I'm still unsure on that. I think it's difficult to say that Ronaldo made us worse at this point. As we said earlier, like we gave him Player of the Season, he scored so many vital goals for us. Did he? Did he change the way that we played? Yeah, I think he probably did, and and he yeah, may have made us. Yeah, if you us- forget
1: the debate about whether he made us worse and you just have the question of did he change how United played yes definitely
0: yeah and, it, and he may have made our style worse like he may have made us more disjointed but that doesn't necessarily mean he he was a net like a net negative for yeah, the team if yeah. that makes sense um, like I think it's still possible that he was a positive to this team which I think he undoubtedly was this season but made us more disjointed because he was less involved in the way that we wanted to build our attacks uh, but I, but yeah i think the point about you know everyone wanting to play on the left was also a real challenge that i don't think we ever really got hold of throughout the whole season it's something that we've been trying to figure out for 5 or 6 years now though we still don't have anyone to play on the right sancho was supposed to be brought in for that yeah. purpose and has spent the whole season playing on the left so it's yeah. just again it's a it's a failure of recruitment it's a failure of planning it's a failure I've- to <laughs>
1: Put all of uh, sorry to put in. I I found it funny. How, uh so Alango obviously very good seasoning oh, overall. Um, <laughs> I think I know what playing on the say. right, <laughs> yeah. I found it funny. how Alango, our right winger, who's done very well. And then this summer uh, he was playing for Sweden, scored his first goal for Sweden, which is great for him. Uh, and he's he's a brilliant character and he, he's an exciting player. But was like, yeah, I think I actually prefer playing on the left wing. <laughs> so United have a an, uh, yet, yet another winger. Alango took him out alone next season. First playing on the left. After those comments. Well, yeah, so uh, Alanga, Rashford, Sancho, Martial, if we're including him. Yeah, um,
0: Greenwood at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but obviously not now, yeah. All all wanting to be on the left. Yeah. Yeah, just a, a curious thing. Again, it's a failure of, of all parts of the club. Cause it's a failure of recruitment. But even if you don't get that recruitment right, as manager, especially Oli, you still got to be better and be able to get more out of whoever you put on the right or you know but somehow tailor it to yeah. make it work it's yeah it, it's a failure of, of all levels
1: but then so, so Solskjaer at times tried putting Pogba on the right and that was so start of the season Popper played on the left and looked great yeah and that was when Rashford was out injured and Sancho wasn't in the team yet and he did he was so good there for the first few games I think it was seven assists in his first four games and come the end of the season he actually I think he finished like fifth or sixth in the the assist charts because he'd had such a good start to the season even if the from October it was terrible um, or not terrible but mainly rubbish um, but not just so it's not just Rashford and, and the wingers and Sancho but also all the team's best creators even Ronaldo and and Bruno and Pogba and Shaw and Tellez and Teles is actually Statistically, one of our, when he plays is, is one of the players who creates more chances than yeah. anyone else. All of them are left sided players. And so that's why Pogba was often tried on the right to try and balance things out. So it's not just the fact that, uh, the wingers don't play on the right or aren't as good on the right. It's also the fact. And yes, it, so it comes down to Wan Bissaka and Dalo. Yes, but also in midfield, even the midfielders and the attacking midfielders and our strikers all naturally float across their left hand side and prefer to work in those areas and that is that's just terrible team building.
0: Yeah it is. It, it's a it's a failure of of planning ahead of how this team is actually going to look on the pitch. I literally just rewatched um just re, just rewatched Moneyball last night and there's that famous line in Moneyball where they say you don't need to be buying players, you need to be buying wins. And it feels like United very much are and have been they've bought players because of how they think that individual what their quality is instead of actually thinking about how they contribute to the team winning. And I think, you know, we've ended up in so many situations where we've got too many players yep. who bring the same thing to the table or who want to operate in the same spaces and can't actually complement each other very well. And yeah, that, I mean, that, what you were saying is is the perfect encapsulation of that, that we had, what, how many players did you name there? Seven players, potentially, who yeah. could, probably six of them at any one time could easily all be on the pitch together. And yep. all of them want to operate in pretty much the same part of the pitch.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and a couple of them are, are leaving now, uh, which we'll come on to. Uh, any other thing in terms of kind of our play in possession? McTominay had a bad season after having had a really yeah, good he one. He really did. He didn't kick on in the way that he needed to. He showed his limitations on the ball. He showed his limitations off the ball. And after, because in the Europa League final, he was man of the match, even though we lost the game. That was a really good performance, and yeah. he'd had he'd had several great kind of big game displays and he just hasn't kicked on this year um, which is a shame it,
0: it was odd to me particularly how like the way in which he played baddie this year because one of the things I really noticed about him was he would he would sort of hide when, when we had the ball especially when the yeah. centre-backs would have the ball he would he'd have a habit of just kind of hiding behind whoever was putting pressure on the centre-backs and, and sort of asking for the ball but knowing that it could never get to him whereas even Fred, who even when he before Christmas when he wasn't playing, amazingly you see Fred, and he was so much better at creating an angle and giving, making himself a a viable passing option, and that that's just really not like McTominay that we've seen before. Like you mentioned, he had you know really good big game pedigree. He's always come across as someone who will sort of stand up and take responsibility, even if he's not the best player. You know, his limitation has never before been that he won't take responsibility and and try and take things on. It's more being that maybe he doesn't have the ability to pull it off. And so it was just odd to see him sort of revert to that way of playing when it's not really something that we've seen from him before this season. Yeah,
1: and he still has the right character. One of the things that will really stick with me from this year in terms of bad moments will be at Arsenal away after just such a disappointing defeat and and another really bad one and McTominay coming over and just kind of, he just looked utterly dejected and just kind of putting his head in his hands yeah. and, and proper, like properly genuinely apologizing for what, I'd what we'd, we'd been watching and that will, that will stick with me. And I, I still really like him, but I think this season has shown, and maybe it's possible that he can kick on enough next year, but he's, he's not young. And um I think this year has probably shown that he's at best a, a bench option for United going forward. The only other thing we should probably mention is is David De Gea, who had a great shot stopping season, but in terms of contributing to United in other regards, there was an interesting athletic article which said De Gea had the lowest share of his team's passing attempts, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but I think we can agree in this case probably is because he just limited the way that we built up chances so much and, and consistently all throughout the year.
0: Yeah, there was a great thing that I I quote tweeted um, by John Harrison, who, for, who was writing for goalkeeper.com, where he had basically quantified the basically the goals saved or conceded above expectation for all of the big six goals, goalkeepers, but through what they were yeah. doing in different phases of the game. So there was like shot stopping, there was uh, distribution with your feet, shot handling, 1v1 uh, positions, sweeping up from through balls and then passing under pressure. And basically it was almost exactly what you would expect for De Gea. He was by far and away the best goalkeeper out of the top six with shot stopping, especially with general shot stopping. He wasn't quite so good at at one-on-ones, but then his numbers were on the floor when it came to both general and passes under pressure. And all of the other goalkeepers in the top six, obviously, as you'd expect, especially Edison and Alisson, are adding so much value to their teams with with the way that they can pass out from the back. And, you know, I think I think there's a pretty good chance that De Gea is captain of Manchester United next season. And to be honest, I don't think he should be starting, honestly. And I, I know this is something we've talked about before, but I truly believe that De Gea's lack of, lack of ability, maybe lack of, I don't even know if it is lack of ability, but the, the fact that he doesn't play out from the back in the way that a modern top goalkeeper does, I really do think it holds us back so much. And I think it's probably going to get worse under Ten Hag because everything that I know about Ten Hag and the way his IX team's played, he wants a goalkeeper that can play out from the back and De Gea is definitely not that. Yeah. And I and I do, it's an odd one because I don't think De Gea is, like I, I, if you ask me the five biggest problems on the pitch at Man United, I wouldn't put De Gea as one of those problems. Well, he's,
1: there was an interesting line from Carl Anker, I think in an athletic piece uh, that said United have, for far too long ignored the nice problems until they become bad problems Yeah, and and De Gea is one of those at the moment he's a nice problem but in seven months time will he still be a nice problem to have or will it be a bad one because his lack of ability or or as we've seen lack of ability maybe he'll pull something out under Ten Hag but uh, to play that role could hold Ten Hag back in terms of building his style at United
0: yeah so yeah it's a great way of putting it the nice problems and and the, the bad problems. And I, yeah, De Gea is a nice problem at the moment in that he's not, he's not terrible enough to, to be a huge detraction from the team. Like, he probably is still giving us some value because his shot stopping is so good. But I think we would be a much better team with, say, even if it was Edison. And so you go to the other extreme of a goalkeeper who's not a great shot stopper, but is amazing with his feet. I think United would, would, have, would be able to progress a lot with someone like that in goal.
1: Yeah. We were going to talk about the players who are departing, but we haven't got much time left. Uh, so Pogba, Cavani off, Matic put off, uh, potentially joining Roma. Not sure where Pogba's, not clear where he's going, not clear where Cavani's going. Uh, Link- I
0: saw I saw someone, by, by the way, the other day say that Matic is becoming, what to Mourinho, what Nico Cranshaw was to Harry <laughs> and I thought that was a great way of putting it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um And then, yeah, Lingard going, also not clear where he'll go. And Mata the same, also off, but not clear where he'll go. Uh, I think there's all, there's, there's, I mean, less so for Pogba and Matic. Uh, Pogba, the great thing is, is the feeling of what could have been. Uh, It's not true that he only had five good games for United. It is true that he wasn't good enough and that the off the pitch stuff, and it's not even off the pitch with Pogba himself. I don't care if he's, Dancing whatever, it was the off pitch stuff with his agent and his brother talking constantly was is shouldn't happen and um, and was too much. He provided some just I mean he made my jaw drop on the pitch. Sometimes the talent there is just unbelievable, and like the level of skill and and technical ability is just outright. And I will really miss kind of I'll miss like standing in Stratford End this season and, and Pobba just picking up the ball and just pinging it with, with just such like skill and, and kind of, uh, what's the phrase? Just kind of nonchalance. He is obviously an amazingly talented player, but it was the right time to move on this. Uh, and I think all, for parties, that would be good. Uh, but he's, he's our best chance creating player gone. So that's, that's a big hole to fill. And then the others, the, the most emotional ones, probably Lingard and Matter. Lingard, things turned sour very quickly at the end, but he's a player who's been at United for 22 years since he was six and scored in an FA Cup final, a League Cup final, won several trophies with us, scored in an FA Youth Cup final and an FA Cup final, which is not something that many players yeah. have done. And yeah, played very well for us for a long time. So that is a sad one, especially the fact that he's ended in this way. He should have gone last summer yeah. with... His head held high and and, and with a, a great reception from United's fans.
0: Yeah, and I think he he takes some blame for I guess the way things have transpired this season. But I don't I don't think he takes any blame for the position that he's been put in. I think, you know, we were saying earlier Solskjaer made some wrong wrong decisions with players. I think probably undermined the trust that the players had in him, and this was definitely one of them. Lingard should have been gone last summer, and I think everyone could have walked away happy with what he contributed to to United. But I mean, I think in general, the players that are, have been confirmed as leaving so far, they all make sense. I don't think there's anyone that would really be clamouring for any of them to stay. Obviously, I think Pogba is the one who you probably look back on with the most regret. Just it, it felt like there was so much that we could have done with Pogba in our team. And um, as I said before about United sort of buying players rather than buying wins, it felt like, we just never surrounded Pogba with the right type of players that we really needed to get the best out of him, and that's and that you know partly Pogba would probably take some blame for that in that maybe he's not versatile enough. But if you pay, if you put that much money into signing a player, why on earth would you not also put more effort and money into building a team around yeah. him that he, he can be the star of?
1: So you know, I think I, I also think one. we I think we thought we were signing a different player. Yeah the pub we thought we were signing was was kind of a a number 6 he literally wore the number 6 shirt that's not who he was at Juventus and that's not where he would have played best
0: yeah but i think i think he's been he's been at united long enough like it didn't take us 5 years to realize that he wasn't a number 6 you know yeah um, yeah and i think it, that was probably clear after 6 months or so and at that point there was still you know loads and loads of time to go out and build a team that he would really flourish in. And I don't think we ever really committed to doing that, which I think has been yeah, our downfall. Definitely. And obviously Pogba takes some blame for that too, because I, I also don't think that his approach to being at United has always been the right one. In not not in terms of all the offers and stuff, like you said, I don't care that he turned up with blue hair to the Manchester derby or anything like that. I, I do care that constantly there have been you know talks of him leaving. It's felt like he maybe isn't quite as committed to United as you might want. And he hasn't performed well enough on the whole. He has had some amazing performances. The one that always sticks out to me, not really a performance, but a moment, is is that pass to Rashford at when Spurs were yeah. playing at Wembley in Solskjaer's first sort of like honeymoon spell at United. That pass to Rashford for his goal was unbelievable. And it, sometimes it, there are going to be moments, I think, when... We're going to see other midfielders try and do things that Pogba could do with ease. And you're just going to think, yeah, that's that's yeah. The other say.
1: one, I remember Anderlecht in the Europa League. And it's worth remembering that he, he, him and Zlatan yeah. together were the two players that took us to those two trophies that year, really. Um, yeah. Uh, against Anderlecht, where I think you control it with pretty much every part of his body to take it over a player kind of knee, chest, head, shoulder, all of it. And yeah, that's when you think, bro, what, what a talent. Um we should wrap up shortly on part one of this season review. Cavani goes after an amazing first season, cult hero status and ruined in the second year for a whole variety of reasons, which we don't need to get into now. And Matic leaves with a very good reception after serving the club well for a few years and did very well at times, less well at other times. And in the end bit, it ended up being quite important in, in his last few weeks at, at the club, having looked like he was kind of being forgotten about for for, for before that uh, we haven't quite got around to low knees and academy yet so we'll shift that into part two uh, but we should wrap up after just over an hour of our season review thank you for listening uh, I hope to see you back for part two where we'll be talking about what's coming ahead under Eric Ten Hag and uh, some good low knees and some good academy talent fit nicely into that conversation see you then goodbye